This is Visa V, a podcast series brought to you by the Alliance Program at Columbia University. Visa V features conversations that challenge our understanding of key global, economic, and social issues by casting them in a transatlantic perspective. I'm Emmanuel Catan. I head the Alliance Program, a partnership between Columbia University and three French universities Sciences Po, Paris and Panthéon Sorbonne, and Ecole Polytechnique. Every episode, I sit down face to face with, or as we say in French, vis a vis, some of the most insightful thinkers on both sides of the Atlantic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. While French and American societies struggle against racism, intolerance and discrimination take different forms on each side of the Atlantic. The French Republican tradition emphasizes laïcité, or secularism, colorblindness, and a strict separation between the private space and the public space. In the United States, community-based identities and beliefs are not necessarily relegated to the private sphere. Racial, religious, or cultural forms of belonging are perceived as having a legitimate place in the public debate. How do these differences affect the reality of racism in France and the United States? What impact do they have on efforts to tackle racism? To discuss these issues, we have the privilege of welcoming Mabula Sumaoho, one of the leading transatlantic thinkers on race, racism, and the African diaspora. Mabula Sumaoho is a French writer and scholar. She is an associate professor at the University of Tours and president and co-founder of the Black History Month Association in France, dedicated to celebrating Black history and cultures. A specialist in the field of Africana studies, Mabula Sumaoro has conducted research and taught in several universities and prisons in the United States and France. She is the author of Le Triangle et l'Hexagone, Réflexion sur une identité noire, published by La Découverte in 2021, and translated in English by Kayama Glover, as Black is the Journey, Africana the Name. Mabula Sumaoro is currently a visiting professor at Bennington College and is also a visiting scholar at Columbia University. Mabula Sumaoro, welcome to Visavi. Thank you, Emmanuel. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure uh, to welcome you. And um, let me start with a question that has to do with your biography. So you were born in Paris of parents who migrated from Ivory Coast in the 1960s. In your book, Black is the Journey, Africana the Name, you explain in a beautiful turn of phrase that your mother tongue is French, but your mother's tongue is Jula, a language that you do not speak fluently, I believe. How did the experience of not speaking your mother's tongue shape your experience of the world? And on the other hand, would you say that you feel at home in the French language, in your mother tongue, um, or do you feel also a sense of exile speaking French? Thank you for this first question. I think this is a difficult uh, question. I don't think at a younger age I was uh, aware of the fact that not speaking my mother's tongue um, how it impacted my, my own experience. So I grew up speaking French. I was always surrounded by the Jula language that was spoken at home and also outside of the home. 
And it was um, something that I was familiar with, that Jula language, but something that seemed to not belong to me. Meanwhile, I was being educated in France and in French. It was the language that I used on a daily basis. So it's really much later that I came to realize and reflect on uh, the fact that I did not speak, that I did not share uh, the same language as my mother, who could, I mean, who can also speak French, right? It's really when I perhaps went away from France that... Uh, um, these questions started to arise and that I realized the, you know, a sense of grief or loss or, you know, something that was missing. You say interesting things also about the English language because you're, of course, as a scholar, you are a specialist in Africa diaspora, but also in English uh, literature and I was struck by a sentence also in, in Black is the Journey, where you write that in English, uh, and I quote, in English, I am free. I can express myself unfettered. I can reinvent myself, end of quote. And I was wondering, um, what is it really about English language or about your, your own experience of English language that makes you feel freer perhaps than um, than when you speak French? Mm. I think that the main idea is, is precisely that um, I do not own the English language and that the English language does not owe anything to me. So English is, to begin with, not French and not Jula. It's not the country I was born in and I grew up in, feeling, you know, perhaps ambivalent, um, about the country itself. It's not the country of my parents, which will forever remain, you know, this sort of a mythologic home or, you know, some phantomatic place. English is my personal choice. It's me selecting, choosing, picking that language, acquiring it, studying it, and then, um, you know, appropriating it. And this leads to this feeling of freedom and to this uh, possibility of reinvention. This is when I become an individual. Right. And, and it, it's interesting because biography is, is, is really also at the core of your own academic journey. And, and this is really very apparent in the use of the, uh, of the I pronoun um, of, of the first person in your mm. own research. The tradition, of course, that's inherited from the Enlightenment tends to put rationality and objectivity at the heart of what um, social sciences are supposed to do. Uh, as a historian or a sociologist, um, you're supposed really uh, to remain distant from your object. In your book, uh, you really question this assumption and you ask, and I quote, what is the relationship between lived experience and the production of ideas? End of quote. And that seems to me to be a really fundamental question. Why is it important for a scholar like yourself to say I, to, um, to basically speak in the first person? I think that the use uh, on my part of the pronoun I uh, has come at a very particular moment. It came after, you know, a classic training in scholarly research in uh, trying to um, 
practice uh, the alleged objectivity, rationality, and uh, you know the normal tools that are used in in uh, you know in research in general, and simply coming to the conclusion that it simply did not fit in what I was interested in, that it was one thing to you know study history, study cultures, study sociology or religions, even let's say from a safe distance. But when you inhabit, when you embody, when you are yourself the object, your object of study, is that distance and is that objectivity possible? And I'm not saying that um, objectivity does not matter. I'm just saying that in light of the history that I'm interested in, that is to say the African diaspora, has objectivity ever existed to begin with? The ways, uh, for instance, um, the original dispersal, uh, the creation of this African diaspora based on the transatlantic slave trade, what was objectivity about? How do you write history on the basis of which sources? And the missing sources are the sources coming from the enslaved. These archives are simply not accessible. So what do you do? And if you happen to be a product of that particular history, how do you fit in this methodology? Perhaps your lived experiences can inform and can enrich this type of research. And why not, right? Do you have a particular perspective that does not erase the other perspectives, but that might contribute to enlarging right, the field? And I think that those experiences should not be muted. Right, right. And do you think that that perhaps also opens the possibility for broader audiences also to be welcomed into um, these kinds of scholarly enterprises, but that at the same time reflect uh, a personal uh, point of view, that there, there may be new generations also of, of, of individuals and maybe even beyond the, the world of academia that, um, you know, uh, can actually be attracted to this kind of scholarship uh, led through, you know, the first person uh, with an explicit first person actually leading that, um, that scholarship enterprise. Mm. I think that we all know that, I, I hope, we all know that academia is, a, is an ivory tower. We all know that academia is able to produce, you know, very precious and important knowledge. And one of the questions that I have in mind is, what is the use of that knowledge if it remains limited to the confines of, of academia? So if other people are more comfortable with different styles, different approaches, yes, so, you know, so be it. And I welcome, you know, larger numbers having access to things that can uh, remain very confidential within academic circles, right? So it's simply perhaps a matter of genre, of style, but I don't think that it um, changes anything to the depth, the possibility of importance of the findings. It doesn't devalue the knowledge that is being produced, but maybe it does or it seeks to make it more accessible, but it also plays on the balance or tries to strike a balance between, you know, 
the macro and the micro, between the global and um, you know the individual or, or the personal, because I think that both aspects matter. That it's 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 one thing to talk about you know historical events, you know statistics, abstract notions, but those abstract notions in the particular field that I'm interested in 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 Africana studies, these notions have a real material impact in people's lives and experiences. And perhaps also, you know, there is something of an illusion um, that uh, even, you know, a scholarly book that doesn't use the the pronoun I um, is really objective and that the I is not present. It's not because it is not said that it is not present. I, I mean, totally one of the great, agree. <laughs> one of the great strengths of your book is um, specifically the fact that you are uh, straddling both sides of the Atlantic and that you provide in this book also an analysis and an understanding of how racism plays out in French and American society. And I was wondering how you would characterize this difference. I know it's 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 fairly complex, but focusing, for example, on the idea of of, of colorblindness, which structures a great deal of debate and even policies in France. Do you think that colorblindness, to focus on this specifically, do you think that it makes it easier or harder um, to combat racism? In my view, in the French, um, you know, contemporary French context, this idea, this ideal, this mythology around colorblindness does make it more difficult to combat racism. It's very difficult to evaluate, to assess, to be clear about racism if we are caught up in the belief uh, of colorblindness. But I must begin by saying that colorblindness in the Republican context is, is a really novel abstract. Colorblindness is stated in the first article of the Fifth Republic. And the Fifth Republic dates back to 1958. This insistence on colorblindness really begins in 1958. That is to say, on the eve of all the independences of the territories that were part of the French Empire. What I'm trying to say is that France has not always been colorblind. And France has not always proclaimed herself to be colorblind. And so if the story begins in 1958, I am interested in what took place prior to 1958 and that contributed to the world as we know it from 1958 on and what is particularly happening in hexagonal France as a consequence of that you know, preceding history. And that preceding history was nothing, was, was not colorblind the least, nothing. So this is something that we have to come to terms with. Colorblindness is a great idea. It's a great idea. It's just that it has never been practiced. Right. And I'm wondering whether the same would apply to the idea of universalism. Um, in your book, um, you also um, uh, explain that in, in, in your view, universalism um, is situated um, by universalism, broadly speaking, we're talking about 
universal rights and freedom, uh, equality, solidarity, the founding principles of uh, uh, the French Republic. Um, if universalism is indeed, you know, shaped by Western male-dominated societies, does it necessarily mean that we should give up on the idea, on the aspiration uh, to universalism altogether? Uh, or does it mean that universalism has to be somehow reinvented uh, to better reflect uh, the, the the diverse values uh, that make up our complex and, and multicultural societies? Mm. So in my view, it's really not about the rejection of universalism. I don't even know if, if universalism has to be reinvented. Perhaps it has to be redefined. But most importantly, it has to become real. My issue is for people to cling to the theory and the discourse around universalism with not, without paying any attention to the enforcement of that universalism. That is my take on the question. I have nothing against universalism, and I do understand that these are principles and ideals that need to be, you know, to become reality, right? But we need to be willing to make that reality happen. It, it cannot be only proclamations. Just because we say we are a universalist country doesn't make the country, doesn't make the nation uh, a universalist nation. It, it takes actions. There is a, a, an interesting way in which um, Colombia philosopher uh, Suleiman Bashir Diagne separates and distinguishes between two forms of universality. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether I could get your take on this, because uh, what, what, uh, what Professor Diagne shows is that um, uh, there should be a difference between a vertical form of universality, which uh, essentially imposes ideas from the top down or behaviors from the top down, and, and a horizontal form of universality, which is the result of an a kind of equal dialogue among a diversity of cultural groups um, and individuals. Uh, in other words, you know, horizontal universality recognizes that every individual in a society has the right to basically contribute to building uh, common values and creating a sense of shared purpose. And perhaps this really chimes in with what you were saying um, regarding universality as as a goal, as a common goal that needs to be reached instead of being conceived, on the contrary, as something that is vertical, that is already established. Yes, I definitely think that uh, Suleiman Bashir Dian's, you know, conception or, you know, vision of a some form of horizontal universality is, you know, does matter and does make sense and does uh, call for the recognition of the diversity, right? I don't understand the, you know, the clinging to some type of homogeneity that simply has never existed in the history of the French Republic, simply because France was a colonial power. So if France had an empire, that empire was composed of a multitude of, you know, groups, populations, communities, religions, whatever it is. And the country managed for, you know, centuries the diversity of the populations within the colonial empire. France was able to count who was a citizen and who was a native. 
France was able to collect statistics uh, of the Muslims of the empire or the Jews of the, or, or the empires. France was able to um, make distinctions between the various ethnic groups of, in Polynesia. So it's not a country that has traditionally had a practice of colorblindness. This idea is, is, is very novel in my view. So this idea of horizontal universality offers maybe or has the capacity to offer, you know, more equality, egalitarian representation, equal legitimacy, um, equal acceptance maybe, and more reflective of the reality of the people and the communities that make up the French nation and the French Republic today. And as someone who has the advantage of having taught and researched in um, universities, both in France and the United States, I'm curious to know whether you feel that <clears throat> these, these differences that we've just been discussing are also reflected in university life and on university campuses. And concretely speaking, do you take account of these differences when you teach? Do you, do you teach differently when you're in front of um, a, an American group of students or a French group of students? Oh, yes. I, I have to teach differently because the settings, the context are totally different. I, I, I can say that I have much more freedom in the U.S. context and not to say that the U.S. is a better place. It's just I think it has to do with, with history and structure. So when it comes to the U.S., there has been a recognition for diversity. Not to say that it, it has been easy, but I'm, I want to insist on the fact that there have been mobilizations by different groups from the very establishment of the United States of America that have fought to make sure that their representation and inclusion was accepted by the nation. In the French context, is is things are different because, of course, those minority groups have traditionally found themselves outside of the hexagonal space of France. So I think that the major difference between the United States and France is geography. When it comes to France, there is this dichotomy that has prevailed for so long between hexagonal France and the rest of the territories that are called overseas territories or departments, right? Which raises the question of the inclusion the legitimacy, the visibility, and the audibility of those minority groups. So people have mobilized, but there have not been that many, I would say, victories yet. Even the place of minorities within French academia is, is it's simply not at the level of what is going on in, in, the, in the U.S. So I can do, let's say, more things in the United States, simply because within academia, you can find the entire world. I'm talking to you, Emmanuel, today, and you said that you were born in Montreal, in Canada. Uh, we have colleagues uh, coming from all over the world, and they, are, they can be welcomed uh, and um, included in the teaching staff of these, these institutions. The structure in France is, is very different. Therefore, sometimes you can find yourself restricted in access to, you know, a particular knowledge. I'm wondering whether this this geographical difference that uh, you're mentioning isn't also reflected in the way in which history is being remembered um, between France and and the United States. 
Um, in France, one of the things that strikes me is that the remembrance of uh, slavery and the slave trade and its presence in, let's say, French collective imagination has come at a fairly late stage. Um, we think about it, slavery was abolished twice in France, first after the revolution, and then was reinstated by Napoleon in 1802, then abolished again, definitely this time in 1848. But more than a century has passed uh, since then. And while France, you know, started coming to terms with other, you know, dark stains in its history, it wasn't until the early 2000s that the history of slavery came to prominence in French collective memory. Uh, and one of the triggers for that was, of course, the, the, the Tobiha law of 2001, which recognized slavery as a crime against humanity. So I'm, I'm just wondering what, what took so long. I think it took a long time, but it also took a long time in the United States, even though, even beyond the geographic the different situation that I've just described, right? So now, since 2001, uh, you know, the Tobira law has recognized slavery as a crime against humanity. The United States of America have not, right? Uh, so it, it, it's not that clear uh, for both places. But the Tobira law of 2001 comes after a huge mobilization, a huge demonstration that took place in 1998 um, in Paris, uh, a demonstration that was commemorating the 150th anniversary of the second abolition of slavery. And that um, demonstration was able to gather this large number of people because of the, you know, decade-long mobilization of people coming from the what we call the overseas departments or territories. The memory of the slave trade within the overseas departments and territories has existed for a long time and there have been commemorations. The commemorations were not national. They were all local with every territory having their own, you know, particular dates. Uh, so in Martinique and Martinique and Guadeloupe and, and, yeah. and Guyana mm -hmm. and Reunion mm -hmm. Island and all these things, different dates. What happens in 1998 with the 150th anniversary of that second abolition that ultimately led to the passing of the 2001 Tobira law is that now it has come, let's say, to the capital. Now it has become a national debate. The question that could follow up would be, could be what has happened since the passing of that law and what has been the commitment of, you know, the French nation in light of that alleged uh, recognition, right? So the Tobira law, for instance, led to the establishment of the National Committee for the History and the Memory of Slavery and the Slave Trade. There has been uh, the establishment of um, an academic institution called CIRESC uh, in, in, in France. So it's the International Center for Research on uh, the Slave Trade and Slavery. So there have been a few things um, that have come out, but... Um, not so much. I mean, not enough. Not uh, There has been this annual uh, commemoration of the history of the slave trade and slavery um, on May 10th. Sometimes presidents attend, sometimes they do not. Yeah, it's, it's been 22 years now, so 
I think so much more needs to be done, right? There has been a change in um, what is being taught in, in primary schools and in secondary schools. So the activism uh, and mobilization do continue, but there's a, it's a long, a long road. It's a long process, and it's true that there is indeed a contrast between the interest that uh, such issues is gathering in university circles um, and what is happening actually in, you know, at school level and high school level. Um, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation, Mabula um, Sumaoho. Thank you so much for your enlightening uh, remarks. And um, may I remind our listeners that uh, your book, Le Triangle de l'Hexagone, uh, Réflexion sur une identité noire was translated in English by Kayama Glover as Black is the Journey, Africana the Name, and published by Polity. Mabula Sumaoho, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. Vis-a-vis -vis is brought to you by the Alliance Programme, a partnership between Columbia University, Paris Panthéon-Sorbonne, Sciences Po, and École Polytechnique. This podcast is produced by Monica Hunter-Hart and Georgia O'Neill, and I'm Emmanuel Catan. Special thanks to Columbia Libraries. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about the Alliance Programme and how we support academic exchanges, research, and collaboration between the U.S. and France, please visit us at alliance.columbia.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter X, and Instagram. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.